Welcome to the Crack House Chronicles, your favorite true crime podcast. I am Donnie, and with me is a man that wants everyone to know that the only thing vegan about him is the beer he drinks. <laughs> it's Dale. Is that vegan beer? Well, I don't think there's any meat in it. Well, damn. Yeah, I guess that's vegan then. Yeah. It's a uh, liquid bread, right? Yeah. <laughs> and you grow wheat to make bread. Yeah. We're a wheat beer. Yeah. Wheat beer. Hops so, and all that stuff. That's what my, my daughter says. We'll drink your wheat beer. Yep. Liquid bread. <laughs> What's going on, dude? Oh, I'm just, I'm ready to get at it. This is my favorite time of the week. Yeah. I love it too, man. Doing good. Going recording and just having a good time and drinking a little beer. You damn right. Yeah. Well, I love it. a good old time. I love it. You got anything you want to mention or any, any shout outs, dude? Yeah, we're going to give a few shout outs today. Shout out? Shout out uh, Thursday or shout out whatever. Anyway, yeah. We do have a couple of uh, Apple Five Star reviews I would like to uh, give a shout out to. Ooh. This podcast is one of my favorites of all time. It's the only thing that gets me through the long, boring hours of the workday. I have recommended you guys to all my friends work with me and they love it as well. Keep doing what you're doing. I love it. Much love, Alexis from Kentucky. That Kentucky. Is five stars. So, man, that is awesome. We really, really appreciate that. And uh, if you guys could drop a five star for us, we would appreciate that too. And write something in the comment box. Right. Because that way it will let us know. Even if you just type a couple of dots or something, I think. Yep. It really doesn't matter, does it? Now, I have another one, <laughs> which is a, which was a little little wild. It was uh, from Inwit. Inwit, Inwit, Inwit. We'll go with Inwit. How about that? Inwit twenty, and it says, "Great show, heavy breathing makes it better. Never change, guys." I have no idea what they mean. <laughs> <sighs> Me neither, dude. I guess we got a little bit of something for everybody. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> but we love it. Thanks so much for the five star. That is really cool. And a uh, final thing, we'd like to give a little shout out to our one of our friends on Instagram who. Uh, Posted, uh, I think it was yesterday or the day before, from Empress Luger. It says, I'm really obsessed with this podcast. I found it a week ago, and I'm already up to episode 55. Whoa. So they were just mowing through. We have to get some stuff going to, before they catch up with us. But, man, that is really cool. And uh, some of these I posted on our, our socials. You guys can check them out. And it's really cool stuff, man. I agree, man. If anybody wants to go on Apple Podcast and leave a rate and review, write something in the comments box. Yeah. That yeah, way it'll show up and we'll catch it and we'll give you a big old shout out. Yeah, let us know. And we want to give a big old shout out to all our friends in South Africa, Donnie. Yeah. Because according to Chartable, we are now in the top 100 in South Africa. Yeah. So shout out to all you folks in South Africa. But uh, let us know who you are. Pop us on our social medias and uh, we'll shout you out. <laughs> to be listed on Chartable is a pretty big deal. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. It's really cool, man. I agree. Cool stuff. And, uh, well, actually, all of this stuff's cool, man. It's really kind of what we do it for, you know. I mean, they like we're making a lot of money or nothing or oh. money at all, actually. <laughs> but but uh, it's just fun. And then to have people really appreciate it and then dig what we're doing. And uh, and we get this kind of feedback from you guys. Uh, it just it means the world to me. Yep. If you want to go to the store page and get you a T-shirt or something, go ahead and do that. It helps out. If you just want to tell your friends about us, that helps out, too. That's right. Yeah, just pass the word along. And we do have a Patreon going. We're trying to build that up a little bit. You yep. want to jump over there and do that. And if you want to just give a dollar or something, jump over to the, the web page. There is like a one-time donate button there as well for under the gas money button. Any of that thing. And I think that's enough of this running around. Let's get to it. All right. We're going to get into our episode, dude. And we always do an episode once in a while that pisses Dale off. Mm. And this one pissed him off. This is a pisser. This, this story pissed him off. But today we are talking about... Davina Buff Jones. Yes. 
Now, Davina, she was born in Charlotte, North Carolina on July the 29th of 1966. Her parents were David Loy Buff and Harriet Buff. But she wasn't too fond of her name. She wanted to go by D. Right. And But her dad called her Vanny. I believe uh, he wanted a, he must have wanted a, a son here and was going to name him after himself because even though he goes by Loy, his name is David, right? Yeah. Yeah, so he put the little Davina. I could be wrong, but that's just what I was thinking. But she wanted to be called D. Yeah. D-E-E. Well, that way she didn't have to explain her name every time anybody asked her what it was. That's the only Davina I've ever heard of. Right. Yeah. But she was the middle child of two other sisters. Yes. And I guess being a middle child, she sort of had to... She was trying to live in the shadow of her big sister and not be compared to her younger sister kind of thing. And well, they just kind of get left out. The first one gets all the stuff, and then the second one's like, uh, and then you get the, the baby, and the baby's getting all the attention, so the middle child kind of gets left out. But yeah, she was a middle child and I guess kind of left out. She was tomboyish. It was reported that she never had a problem attracting the attention of young men. Well, she's a cute girl. Yeah, very cute girl. And we're going to post pictures of her. But like I said, she was a tomboy, smoking, spitting. She would curse, and she could be brash and insensitive. And she wasn't the type to shy away from confrontation, Dale. Now, she was five feet tall in adulthood, Mm -hmm. and her hips were uneven. And that was something she was kind of self-conscious about. It's kind of wild. Yep. And she even hated wearing dresses because she felt they kind of accented her hips more and it showed her uneven hips. Right. Well, mm-hmm. she was more of a tomboy, and she probably didn't wear dresses a lot anyway. No, she didn't. But she loved animals. Mm-hmm. And she was a pretty good horseback rider. And she wanted to be a veterinarian at one time And when she grew up. And she actually spent her younger years working in her parents' restaurant. This was the Peddler Steakhouse in Charlotte, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And Real nice place. Yeah. I've been there, I know, at least once. And there, she was the hostess. And it was reported that all the customers just loved her, and even the employees that worked there. And they said she had a a real good personality for dealing with people. And a lot of celebrities went to the Peddler Steakhouse, Dale. They were NASCAR drivers, famous golfers. And it was reported that Michael Jordan and the UNC basketball team would be regulars there. Yeah, well, you know, Charlotte's got a you know, a hub for NASCAR and all that stuff, so it's in a big airport there, so a lot, mm-hmm. of, a lot of celebrities and upper ends going there, I'm sure. Yep, and Dee, she could be really outgoing, but she also had her kind of like a, a dark moments, and this was when there were two suicide attempts in her teen years, mm. and one was um, her sister had saw her in her parents' room with a belt wrapped around her neck. Yeah. Yeah, we talked about this. I was kind of on the fence about, yeah, I don't know about this being a suicide attempt. It's not like she's had the belt tied up to anything. It was just put around her neck. It wasn't like fastened, tightened or right. anything. Yeah. yeah. You know, I get, you know, maybe just what it looked like, but, you know, I don't know. Yeah, sometimes, yeah. And then uh, there was another time when she was in high school. She was going to West Charlotte High School. She overdosed on Tylenol. And oh, that's a different story. Yeah, that's a whole different thing. <laughs> and this, uh, she actually had to be taken to the hospital and have her stomach pumped out. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a little bit different. Now, D, she had what they called Napoleon syndrome because mm. she was barely five foot tall. Right. And yeah. 
we got we got a boatload of short jugs, but we'll just leave that alone. Yeah, and she was probably not even a hundred pounds. Right. Yeah, I think it was like ninety nine hundred, just ready to age. Yep. Now, Dee married for the first time at the age of twenty four to a man named Harry Adams, and she lived with him and a stepson. This was on a horse farm in Lancaster, South Carolina. That's not far from here either. No, it's just uh, south of Charlotte, across right. the state line right there. But their marriage ended at about four years when they declared bankruptcy. Yeah, it's kind of weird, isn't it? Yeah, that is weird. I guess there's probably a lot more to it than basically, well, we're out of money, so let's let's break up. Yeah, it had to be more to it, but yeah. I hadn't heard anything more about that. Right, okay. And then in 1994, she remarried. Uh, to a man named Jeff Jones, and he had been previously married, and he had a daughter. And according to her family, he was mentally and physically abusive to Dee. Hmm. And their marriage only lasted a couple years. And during this time, Dee was charged and found guilty of a simple assault when she had spit on her stepdaughter's mother. But it was sort of characterized as the incident as, as fighting for what she thought was right for her daughter yeah she was taking up for the stepdaughter so yeah you know it's just one of them deals i mean spitting's a little rough but <laughs> but you know and whatever and good for her for getting out of that marriage you don't yeah. need no no abuse that's a bad bad thing yeah but it was safe to say that d was she pretty, wasn't, she wasn't she, taking no shit no she was a hothead no doubt about <laughs> yeah, it let's put it that way but good for her but D, you know, she wanted to be married, and she she wanted, wanted she wants some kids. Yeah, she wanted some kids of her own. Right. But she had discovered this husband that was mentally and physically abusive to yeah, her. Jeff Jones. Yeah, he was taking some medication that would prevent her from getting pregnant. Hmm. And yeah, get this: <laughs> the medication was used to treat herpes. Treat his herpes. Yep. All this is a secret. Yeah. Mm, not good. Yep. But she left him, and yeah. she. Moved back in with her parents, who had retired, and moved to Oak Island, North Carolina. It's at the Outer Banks. It is. And Dee was trying to, I guess, recover from her divorces and, I guess, trying to figure out where she was wanting to go with her life. Right. Yep. And she worked for a little while as a bank teller. She worked in a, a veterinarian office. You know, she really wanted to be a veterinarian, so that was probably pretty cool for mm-hmm. her. Yeah, she had some friends that were urging her to enroll in law enforcement. Which is kind of wild to me. Yeah, it's just, but her being, I guess, uh, outgoing, um, I guess they knew her best and yeah. tried to steer her in something she would want to do, I guess. Yeah, something to kind of fit her personality. Yeah. Yep. So she enrolled there in uh, Brunswick Community College, but it was there she had a hard time, I guess, to her being so short, and she was picked on quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, during basic law law enforcement training, I'm sure there was, a lot of them, there was probably a lot of guys and just giving her a hard time. Yeah. So she quit the program and uh, eventually enrolled in the same program at Cape Fear Community College. Right. And she graduated that in 1998 from uh, with her law enforcement degree. Well, she said she could do it, didn't she? Yeah. You know, and I was talking to you, it's pretty wild, you know, she she had her hearing problems and she had the thing with the hips, but I guess she overcome all that to be able to pass all the physical tests and everything to, to do it, so good for her. Yeah, she had a strong will about her, ain't no doubt about it. Yeah. Somebody probably told her she can't do it, and that's probably why she did Yeah. <laughs> but she was always trying to, I guess, improve herself and then, uh, improve her, her personal life, too. Right. And she also had two Australian shepherds that were her babies that she called them of course and one of them was named lord adam 
and the other one was Precious Queen. <laughs> and that was a cool name. Yeah, and she doted on these animals. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know them as her babies. And they lived with her alone on in a small house there on Oak Island. But during all this time, Dale, she sought treatment for depression and began taking some antidepressants. Right. But I guess she was sort of being proactive on her depression. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. No, not at all. But she was hired on Bald Head Island as a cop. Hmm. She got a job there. And Bald Head Island is uh, it's like the southernmost tip of the Outer Banks. And this little area is, this island actually is known for the one percenters. Hmm. It's upscale community, no doubt about it. Yeah. Yeah. High dollar old million dollar homes and stuff like that and mm-hmm. even if you're going to vacation there it's, it's pretty pricey yes now d she was pretty excited about her new job and she had bought her uniform and supplies and she had her mother take a picture of her yep and we've got a picture that we'll post on our social medias yeah she's just grinning on this thing looks so happy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but people were saying that this would be a good fit for her because you know she had worked in restaurants and you know, been around celebrities, so working on this island with the rich and the, I guess the, well, the, the rich and famous and the entitled. She not basically wouldn't be starstruck, you know, or, or wouldn't be intimidated because the people were people, you know. Yeah, to her anyway. Yeah, but D, she had some pretty strict values, Dale. She took her job seriously, man, mm-hmm. and she was very honest and had a high integrity, and she wouldn't. She was just doing by the book. Yeah, if you were breaking the law. Yeah, it's basically black and white. You're either breaking the law or you're not. Yeah. There wasn't no leeway or, you know, we'll, we'll look the other way for, for the rich folks yeah, in she, her eyes. She was considered painfully honest. Yes. No doubt about it. Definitely. But like I said, Bald Head Island, it, they had the privilege of living there, and they thought they, I guess, had the run of the island. They could do whatever they wanted to do. Yeah, the way she was looking was not going to go over well with these people because, you know, the way they see it, basically, they they spent all this money, and th- that's all that lived there. So, the, basically, this is our private island, and, you know, maybe we need some crowd control or something for people who are coming in to other net. You just kind of, you know, be a little security team over there. You know, I don't think they were looking for, a, like, a real police force. They wanted somebody who was going to write them a ticket and throw it away or not arrest their kids if they had a beer or something, throw it away and just let them go and just that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And that just wasn't her. But the bald head village there, their the management, their first priority was their residents. Yes. And the high paying visitors, like you said. You need that money. Like mm-hmm. Amity Island. Yeah. From Jaws. Yeah. Definitely. It reminds me a lot of that. No, yeah. And there were times that uh Davina had some complaints about her, Dale. Yep. Uh, yeah. The frequent residents and council members uh, didn't just complain to her. They went to her boss and the, yeah. the village manager and complained yeah. to them about D. Basically, didn't you know, they didn't need no, uh, quote, some snot-nosed lady cop telling them what to do. Yeah. So they're, they're, they're not having it. Mm-mm. So you're going to have to do something about this. Yeah. I think she was, uh, she was there, what, 10 months and had eight or nine complaints or yeah. something like During that. Yeah, time, yeah. Seven, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot. So, yeah, the, a lot of people are not, they're not having it. And even though the police force is pretty small, you know, there's only like 10 officers that worked on this island. And they worked out of a single wide trailer. Yeah. Yeah. that. And, and they, they had to. Buy, buy their own supplies, like toilet paper and uh, paper towels, right? Yeah. Yeah. When they when they come to work. So. Yeah, so they're, they're not really, really funded there either. So you can tell they're there. 
you know, basically we just want somebody that says they're cops here. Yeah. Which would be a cushy job if you was the cop. I think. <laughs> I think it'd be a. I think it'd be a sweet job to have a be a cop on that island. Yeah. What are you gonna do? Nothing. Ride around and wave. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. But there was the the chief of police there. It was a female. Her name was Karen Grasty, mm-hmm. and she at one point managed to get a supplier to discount them some radios. Yeah, because the ones they had were kind of crappy. Yeah, they were very crappy. But the village manager, his name was Wade Horn, he turned this request down. Yeah, wouldn't even buy them radio. No. So that's pretty bad. That's, yeah, that's why. Just kind of show you what, what we're dealing with here. Yeah, yeah. We just sort of give everybody a background. Mm-hmm. But now, like we said, Davina was a pretty good police officer, but she was a rookie. And it wasn't uncommon for rookie officers to be, I guess, you know, gung ho. Mm-hmm. That's true. Mm-hmm. Out there trying to prove herself, especially when she's a little tiny. And it was at one point, uh, she got involved with a group of teenagers, and she'd bust them, and they surround her and tried to physically intimidate her, but still threw out their alcohol. Right. But she got into a verbal confrontation with them, and I guess it, it just struck her wrong, and she used some profanity. Yeah. They probably tried to make her guess. After all that, the ones that were drinking went and reported her for using profanity. And even though they were underage drinking. Yeah, they didn't get in trouble. No. Nothing was ever said to them, even though they were all underage. Yeah. But it was about this time that uh, Karen Grasty, she was the chief. In my mind, I think she was just trying to protect Dee in a way and help her become more aware of what the residents wanted. Yeah, and their needs, I guess. Right, yeah. So what she did was she had her, I guess, go back into training and, yeah, kind of, sort of, yeah. Yeah, but when she would be out on patrol, she had to ride with her partner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty much what she did. And this was kind of humiliating to her. Yeah. Well, they tell her to do one thing, stand up and use your voice and be seen and la la. And then when she, she does that, she gets told off her cousin and they bust her back down. So it's a hard place to be out there to try to prove yourself. Unless she's just going to, like I said, ride around and wave her. Yeah, but now they didn't always always ride together their vehicles were together on calls but i think she drove a little ford ranger and her partner keith kane he he had a chevy suv i think that's what he drove on Mm -hmm. the island yes yeah blazer yeah she had a little little truck the only thing she could reach the pedals on right Mm -hmm. yeah and there was one instance that she was escorting an ambulance when she was driving in front of her partner and they claimed that she was going about 70 miles an hour on this island. Mm, yeah, I don't think nobody's believing that. No, because this island, Dale, is just cart paths, pretty much paved cart paths. But they did reenact it, and they proved that she wasn't going 70 miles an hour. I'm sure. Yeah, because it's just, you just can't do it. Right. Probably, probably going about 30, 35. Yeah, that's close to 70. Yeah. But she did uh, overcome that, and they found out she wasn't going 70, but it still, it was just more on her. Right. Now, she worked very close with fire and the EMS, and during this time, she was pursuing a sexual harassment claim against an EMS worker, and his name was Michael Ilvento. 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 And she had met Ilvento at an emergency call at a restaurant. And this is where a kid had fell off a golf cart in the parking lot. Right. 
and the kid was passed out and d was holding his head trying to stabilize him so elvento could put a neck brace on him correct but d said he put the wrong size brace on him at first and he was moving to get the right neck brace for him and he ran his hand up her leg and then grabbed her crotch rubbing his hand against her vagina Mm. but she pushed his hand away and said nothing at the time right well she didn't want to make a big fuss and when he's trying to save his kid i guess yeah just try to handle the emergency and move on with it right but she did report this incident to her supervising officer who had also been her training officer his name was robert willis right and he had told her to just let it go yeah yeah never mind don't worry about it. but it wasn't it wasn't shocking to d at all and she had butted heads with him for a while and she didn't appreciate how he dressed her down in front of the officers right that's crazy mm-hmm Dissimulator. But she did go ahead and, and pursue the sexual harassment suit. Mm-hmm. Now, Dale, it was reported that her partner, Keith Kane, he had warned her that the brass was, they were looking to get rid of her. Right. Uh, because she had made too many waves with the locals, and and she got in too much conflict with the department. She better keep her nose clean if she wanted to have a job. Right. Well, you can see that coming. Mm-hmm. Because everybody's bowing down to the, to the locals. Yeah. But she was filling out resumes and applications for other places in North Carolina. Yeah. Get out of there. Yeah. And Kane's warning was kind of hopeless. And she was starting to look for other positions mm-hmm. to make it matters worse. Her personal life was just as messy as her professional life. Right. And Dee had some re- recent relationships that were equally as damaging as her marriages had been. And one was with a Brunswick County Sheriff's deputy who was also a relative of Sheriff Ron Hewitt. And his name was Will Hewitt. And this guy, he had a, a thing for D. She was cute. Yeah, but he was, I guess, over-infatuated with her. But, yeah. but she had rejected him. Mm-hmm. And he was too intense and made her nervous, and she tried to remain friends with him, but he sh- would just show up without calling. Crazy. At her house. He was coming to her house. Huh? And she was... I guess actively looking to avoid him, her best friend and sister. He said she was just scared of him. Yeah. You know, he's a loose cannon around the sheriff's department, and, you know, it's just crazy. Mm-hmm. And Dee also had an, another ex-boyfriend that was more recent, and I guess he had broken Dee's heart. Yeah, Scott Munson. Yeah. And he was divorced Oak Island police officer who had lived with Dee briefly right before she was killed. Mm. And Scott had broken up with her after he had come to her house and actually had sex with her one final time when he was over and he said he was going to get back with his ex-wife. Mm. Yeah, that I had to kill her, man. I had, that was devastating. I'm sure she just felt like she was just being used. Yep. Yeah, not good. Uh, she got drunk one night, which she rarely did. Right. And she rode out to Scott's house. And he took her back to her house, but she kept calling him and driving around and eventually called Oak Island Patrol. Yeah, he did. Yeah. And said, y'all need to do something. Let's go just help ride around. But they just told her to go back home and yeah. stay out the roads. Mm-hmm. But Scott also told police while they were seeing each other that um, Dee told him about drug activity on Bald Head Island. Yeah. And she knew that there were some big deals going down. Right. And this was over near Old Baldy Lighthouse there on the island. And kilos of cocaine and suitcases of money is how it was described by D. 
So whether she saw something or heard something, she's got a pretty big inkling that uh, there's some serious stuff going on here. Yep. And she was looking to make a big bust. Mm-hmm. I guess to make a name for herself and, right. and to turn the light toward her in a favorable manner, I guess, what she was trying to do. Yeah. Well, you know, you make that big bust and you're the hero here. Mm-hmm. But she had befriended a Brunswick County narcotics officer. His name was Norman McLeod. Mm-hmm. And he was also her her local fraternal order of police representative. And she had met him when she had filed this complaint concerning the sexual harassment case. Correct. And she hadn't wanted to press charges. She just wanted to see that Michael Invento was disciplined and to make sure it didn't happen to any other women. Right. Yeah, she said she was getting no other supervisors, you know, so that's why she had to go to her fraternal order of police representative. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm sure uh, they weren't happy about them going over her head either. No. Mm-mm. Yeah, I think the chief was out on medical leave when she was trying to get all this done. When she came back, she was really pissed off at that had happened. Yeah, Chief Karen Grasty. I think mm-hmm. she was out on medical leave. She had hurt her back or something. Yeah. She said she was really, she told her she was pissed off and that was basically a fireball offense because she went over her head, but just letting her know that she wasn't going to fire her, but she was not happy about it. Now, I bet not. Probably made her look bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it did look bad that Dee had to contact the Fraternal Order of Police for help, but it was also bad whatever pressure Karen Grasty was under, she should have re- supported Dee. Yeah. For sure. Mm-hmm. You know, this Norman McLeod, he was also a drug agent. Yes. At the time. Mm-hmm. So he was a drug agent and her rep. Yeah. But I mean, nobody was wanting to do anything about it, and basically Chief Grassy didn't really want to get involved with it. Mm-hmm. What she'd done, she'd told her boyfriend Scott Monson and her best friend that there were some drug activities on the island. Yeah. And Dee had actually gave Norman McLeod a ferry pass so she could meet with him Actually, the night that she was murdered. Yeah. A pass which he used. Mm-hmm. But this Norman McLeod, he was not a good man to confide in, even though he was the representative for the Fraternal Order of Police. Though she told her boyfriend, Scott Monson, and her best friend about it, McLeod denied that Dee ever told him about any drug activity on the island. Right. Which is, you know, very interesting, considering she had left him a ferry pass so she could meet with him the night of her murder. Correct. Now, they were moving up to October the 22nd of 1999. It pretty much started uneventful for Dee because her and Keith met on the ferry on their way over to the island, Baldhead Island, and there was a strong wind that night, and the seas were rough, and they said the swells were as high as 12 feet. Hmm. It was a full moon, too, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. And... Kane and the ferry boat captain later said that Dee was pretty much in high spirits, joking, and didn't seem depressed or troubled or anything like that. Right. But they did say there were three Hispanic men who were drinking on the ferry. And she went over and politely asked them to throw out their drinks. And they, they did. Yeah, and there was no drama. No, no, no. The captain was pretty happy. That it was yep. just pretty smooth. No, no worries. So when they got to the island... Uh, D and Keith did some paperwork and at the trailer there, and before going on patrol, and returned around ten thirty. And this when they got a call from the manager at the River Pilot Restaurant, saying that some guests whose golf they had some golf carts missing. Yeah. And the manager asked them if they would get a police escort to take the guests back to their house. And D answered and said they would, and they'd be there just just a little bit. 
But when they got to the restaurant, nobody was there. Yeah, the restaurant was closed. Yeah. So kind of weird. It is very weird. And there was nobody waiting or anything like that. <laughs> and they went over to the restaurant next door. It's called the Ebb and Flow. And they didn't know anything about it either. Right. And that's when they went back to the uh, to the police uh, trailer. And it was just a few minutes before midnight. Dee was going out for dinner because it was their dinner break. But she had already eaten, so she went to call her, I guess, her ex-boyfriend that night. Yep. And so I guess smoke a cigarette. And she was out cruising the island, and this is when she came up on Old Baldy Lighthouse. Correct. And she'd called Seacom. And we have that call right here. Yes. Seacom Seacom 4206, show me out with three. Hmm. Stand by, please. And it was just moments later, there was another transmission that said, there ain't no reason to have a gun here on Baldhead Island, okay? Now, Dee's voice was pretty steady, mm-hmm. and it was clear, and it, you could tell that she was calm. If it was any kind of situation, she was trying to de-escalate it. And then she said, come on, do us a favor, put down and then her signal broke up into a loud, crackly feedback kind of... Squelchy noise. Yeah. yeah. Really wild. You can also hear at the very, very end, you can hear her say, Oh, my God, my God. But it's very, very hard to pick up. Very faint. Yeah. But you can hear her saying she's out with three, meaning that uh, she is approaching three people. Correct. After she says, stand by, please. 
and you can hear the CECOM officer trying to call her and then ordering radio silence until they could get an answer from her. They didn't have anybody on the radio. Right. But now her partner, Keith Kane, he did break in asking if Davina gave her location. Right, because he just took off and jumped in the truck to take off after, but he had no idea where he's going. No, he didn't have a clue. Right. And he advised that she didn't, and it took Officer Kane about seven minutes to find her. And when he immediately asked for rescue, his voice was, I guess, inaudible. I guess he was kind of shook up. Oh, bad. Mm-hmm. Basically, when he pulled up, he seen her car backed into a little road, like a dead-end cul-de-sac kind of gimmick, right? Yeah. And it was backed in, but it was running with the lights on. And it's not unusual for a car to be there because this is like where they go and sit and do paperwork or just crowd watch or take a smoke break or whatever. It's, it's just not very uh, unusual for the police car to be there. And this is just right next to the old Baldy Lighthouse. Correct. So he looked around. He didn't see her at first, but he did see a, the door open at, on the lighthouse. So he mm-hmm. walked over to the door, shined his flashlight around in there a little bit. Didn't see anything. He shined the flashlight into her truck, and he noticed that her flashlight was still in the passenger seat. And then he kind of got freaked out a little bit because he knew there's no way she would get out of the truck without her light. Exactly. So something's going on. So he's kind of freaking out and looks around, and I think he looks down the, down the, from her truck a little bit, and he sees what he thinks is a bag of trash or it's a pile of leaves or something, but it ends up being her. Yep. And this is when he reported there's an officer down, and he, yeah. did, he couldn't get a pulse. Right. He ran over and grabbed her arm and see if he could get a pulse, and I'm sure he was freaking out at the time because when you go from your main thing is getting a drunk off a golf cart to your your partner's been uh, killed here or whatever, mm-hmm. it's probably freaking you out to find her dead like this. Yeah. For no pulse. Now, Keith shined his flashlight around the perimeter of the cul-de-sac, and at first not seeing anything, but then seeing what he thought was a pile of garbage, and he looked closer and realized it was Davina. Mm-hmm. And she was lying in the road face down with her head turned toward her left shoulder and her eyes were partly open. He said there was blood flowing from her head and her legs were straight out, bowed slightly, pointing in the direction of her truck. Her left arm was at a 45 degree angle at her waist and close to that was a portable mic that would normally be clipped to her her collar, I guess. Yeah, that's kind of weird to me that it's by her hand probably just come off or, yeah. or maybe she was holding it well i got at the uh, time she was calling i got other ideas but we'll get to that shortly okay and higher up and close to her head and under her hand was her 40 caliber glock mm-hmm. and he said it looked like she had been holding it about two or three inches from her head and we just have to go by basically what he said because there are, guess what there's no crime scene photos none of this no there's no crime scene photos at all it's ridiculous now there's a guy, Kent Brown, he is the fire chief. Right. He was followed by two paramedics, and he ordered the men to remove her body immediately, which would be in direct contradiction of any crime scene directive. I mean, anybody knows how to do a crime scene, you don't mess with anything. Yeah, I'm sure. This pisses me off. This is where we're getting into the... This stuff, all, it pisses Dale off right here. All you guys are going to be pissed off. Yep. Now, the paramedic, he just simply picked D up by her belt loops and put her on a gurney in the back of the ambulance. Now, Kent Brown later said... He considered the area a hot zone, meaning that somebody could still be shooting somewhere. Well, yeah, yeah, we're worried about them EMT guys, though, so we're going to hide over here. You guys go get to pick her up. I mean, they already know she's gone. Yeah. You know, it said that Keith Kane found no pulse and there was no breathing or anything. He, He was pretty much shook up by this. Yeah, I'm sure he was freaked out. 
and yep. he probably didn't remember she had a pulse or not but i mean i would say by the way everything looked you could pretty much tell yep i just don't get it why they go in there and grab her up right off the bat i know that's just that is not what you do Mm-mm. but they were altering the crime scene yes for sure and the ambulance left kent brown claimed he had business elsewhere yeah and he left too yeah he left and he proclaimed that the scene was dangerous, and Officer Keith Kane, in shock and afraid, was left alone to guard the scene. And Keith Kane later said that he was afraid someone would grab Dee's gun in the darkness. Yeah, so guess what? He grabbed it up and moved it. Yeah. And he put it in the passenger floorboard of his own vehicle. Right, and according to some of them, some people said it had already been moved one time, but whether it got kicked when they were trying to pick her up or whatever, but it would, so it possibly had been moved twice. Yeah. So, there you go. But, yeah, they obliterated any fingerprints that might have been on her weapon. Oh, yeah. I'm sure. You know, and I get it if he's scared, but damn, dude. Yeah. you got a gun, too. Now, officers arrived and noted that there was a bloody palm print on the back of Dee's truck. Right. And there were drag marks in the gravel leading to her body. And it looked like she had been shot close to her truck and then dragged over to the side of the road, Dale. Hmm. And her body was already moved and being transported to the ferry. So Chief Karen Grasty left the scene and rushed to get to the ferry. Yeah, she's trying to get to the body. Mm-hmm. And gave orders, you know, on the scene to be secured and put Officer Robert Willis in charge to make sure nothing else was messed up. Yeah. So while all this is going on, Davina was being taken to the ferry to be transported over to the hospital on the mainland. But I don't know, dude. And even the... Employees from the Ebb and Flow restaurant had heard the gunshot and were ordered to the ferry to leave the island immediately. Right. So, But when they got to the dock, there she was. She was just laying there, uncovered, out in the open, on a gurney, just laying there. Yeah. In fact, one of these employees of the Ebb and Flow restaurant was a, a girl named Jamie Grasty. She was Chief, Chief Karen Grasty's daughter. Right. I mean, they didn't have a sheet over the girl. Nothing. Mm-mm. Not You know, no body bag, no nothing, no sheet, no... Just there, here, everybody look at it. And they were really taking her to the hospital for treatment, even though they knew she was dead. Right. There was no compress on her head or anything like that. No, nothing. Yep. Pitiful. And they had moved her body to the depot office there on the dock, still uncovered and unattended. When Chief Karen Grasty and her husband got to the dock, they found Dee's body laying exposed on the gurney, being loaded onto the ferry. Yeah. But they... They took a sheet and covered her and placed the gurney between them, clenching them together, I guess, to, I guess to sandwich her between yeah, the sheets right. to protect her over on the ride. Yeah. Yeah, apparently they didn't have a body bag, so they just made a makeshift one out of a couple of sheets after she'd been laying there for who knows how long. Mm-hmm. Pitiful. Yep. And they were moving her to get her treatment. That's what blows my mind. <laughs> That's what That was the excuse that they took her out of the, uh, the so-called hot zone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why the EMT guy said, we got to get her out of here, load her up now, and take her. And then just took her down to the ferry and left her sitting there. Yep. On the but, but they knew she was pretty much dead. Oh, yeah. Now, back at this crime scene, officers had arrived, and Fire Chief Kent Brown suddenly arrived and cleaned out the back of the ambulance again. Why Why was this such, why was this urgency? Why, I mean, what the hell? Yeah, this so is where a... where did he go? You know, nobody knows. He just had something to do, and he and then left. came back. And then came back, and then starts cleaning out the ambulance. An hour later. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What the hell? And crime scene tape cordoned off this area, and 
Chief Gene Hardy and the Brunswick County Sheriff Ron Hewitt, mm -hmm. they arrived along with D's training officer, Robert Willis, who was left in charge of the crime scene. Right. Now, Chief Hardy was acting police chief because Karen Grassley, like we mentioned, was out on medical leave with a back injury. Right, but she still came to this call. Oh, yeah, it was good of her to come so, to the scene, yeah. So, you know, it's not like she's not active right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But D was taken to Dozier Hospital in Southport, and a preliminary investigation by med examiner Doug Hiltz noted her height and weight and furthermore drew the head wound wrong, even adding a non-existent exit wound. Yeah. And he showed the wound to be on the right back of her head and a bullet trajectory going up and left. But this uh, bullet hole was in the center of the back of her head. Yeah, the actual bullet hole. Yes. Yeah. This drawing was completely wrong. Completely wrong. It was like, dude, what the hell? And, you know, it even added a hole mm -hmm. that wasn't there. Now, there was some gunshot residue that was found on the back of her right hand, Dee's right hand. Her, she was wearing fingerless gloves. Right, like bicycle gloves. Yeah. But they said that could have been from a practice range. Yeah, or for any, who knows how long. Yeah. Yeah. Most people don't wash their gloves. Right. Yeah, I mean, she's a police officer. It would be impossible for Dee to shoot herself directly in the back of her head dale yeah i, I agree yeah because uh her she was short she had short arms and it would be impossible for her to reach her arm around and shoot herself directly in the back of the head well and plus the way the body was the 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 casing was to her right so if she would have flipped the gun upside down and held it like that it would have went the other way mm -hmm. so nothing none of this is matching up and they're they're really trying to push this suicide angle. Yeah. And I ain't buying it. No. Because he drew the... Yeah, when he first drew the the first one he drew, the hole was right below her ear on yeah. the side, which would be fairly simple. Mm -hmm. But the actual hole was dead center back of her head. So that was, you know, that's a little bit different. You know, maybe she could flip it over and hold it with both hands behind her head, but that's a little... Why in the hell would you do that? If she's going to kill yourself, just pull it out and shoot, shoot yourself. Yeah. You know. But they were saying she committed suicide. This right. was the angle they were going for because they were pulling in the her mental instability. Yeah. They uh, were using all that saying that she committed suicide. Yeah. And, and all of her past relationships, they were bringing that into play too, Dale. Yeah, I, I still don't. Now, Dee's body was sent to Jacksonville for a formal autopsy. And at 1030 on a Saturday morning, some 10 hours after her murder, medical examiner C.L. Garrett conducted the first autopsy and witnesses and photographs. He actually drew the bullet wound wrong, but it was in the right spot on the back of her head. It was just drawn upside down, which I kind of get that, you know, especially doing something upside down. Yeah. But at least he did, he did draw it in the right place. Correct. I don't know why he draw it upside down, but yeah. Okay. But now the back of Davina's head Incidentally, and even more suspicious, the police refused to let Dee's family see the autopsy photos. Yeah, I'd be flipping out. And they would never have seen the wound for themselves had right. the funeral home not allowed them to yeah. view her body. Yeah, because she was going to be cremated. And uh, luckily, the funeral home guy let her view the body before it happened, and they went in, and that's when they saw where the bullet hole was. Yeah. So they knew. Can you imagine going there and seeing your kid? No. I can't even imagine. Mm -mm. Now, Ron Hewitt and District Attorney Rex Gore, they met with Davina's family right. at their home, and 
This is when Crocker insisted the wound was closer to her right ear, and Hewitt and Gore backed them up. But uh, Dee's sister, Tanya, she sort of got them in, and she told them they had... That they saw it. Yeah. You can't lie to me. We saw it. Yeah. And it was like, how did you get to see it? We thought she was cremated. Yep. But according to them, the funeral director let them go see Dee's body. So then they all shut up. Yeah, they got to changing their story a little bit and change the subject a little bit. So there's a lot of shit going on here. Yeah. Okay. Now, the evidence supported of her depression. Yeah, well, they knew she had a past, but still, this is right here is definitely not, doesn't look like any of that. Mm-hmm. From all the evidence, everybody said she was upbeat, everything was good, nothing was going wrong on this particular day. She did call her ex-boyfriend, which is a little weird, but... That ain't, that's not out of the ordinary. And then I think they was what they went over to her house, right? Yep. Yeah. Now, the family knew of Dee's depression and suicide attempts when she was a teenager, and they had not heard the police tape yet of Dee's call, but they had already seen what was found at Dee's house on her kitchen table. Right. And this was a to-do list, and it was for that Saturday, and they had noted that she needed to buy some heartworm pills for a dog and some laundry detergent. And pick up some things at the store and take care of some repairs on her truck. Yeah, even had like uh, like put oil in truck and then had to have shocks replaced and even had a quote from a garage and it's some other stuff. So it's not your basic suicide note. No, <laughs> yeah, you know you have stuff to do. You ain't, you're not gonna write a suicide note, dude. Right. Mm-mm. And even her boyfriend that, that she had had, uh, Scott Monson, said she was not su- suicidal. Right. Or even depressed. And she was resolved to just find another job and, and move, move on. And get the hell out of there. Yeah. Right. Getting back to the crime scene, Dale, let's yeah. talk about a little bit more about that. Yeah, let's do. Yeah. Now, after seeing Dee's body safely to the hospital, this Chief Karen Grasty, she returned back to the crime scene about 12.30 p.m. And the crime scene tape was gone. Yeah. And the area had been hosed down. Yeah. And this woman, she was pissed. Yeah, rightfully so. And all the evidence was destroyed, and not only that her direct orders had been ignored, the scene was hosed down from the hose of the fire engine Kent Brown had brought yeah, to the brought scene. To the scene yeah. yeah. You know, that, and they even had ordered him to move that damn truck and get it out of there, but he didn't take it out, and they ended up using the hose to hose down the whole damn scene. Yep. Because they had a high-profile wedding was scheduled for the next morning, so they had to get all the blood and everything out of there to make it look good for the yeah for the residents. Yeah, this was Saturday, going into Saturday, and I think the the wedding was scheduled for Sunday, but that Saturday I think they were going to have pictures made, and mm-hmm. it was a pretty prominent family that was having a wedding there on the island. Yeah, so let's just screw the crime scene because we got to have a, some photos. Yeah. What the hell? Yeah. You know, and they didn't even the the handprint everything was gone yeah everything was gone they didn't they didn't save nothing the skid marks everything there was no the let's put it this way the visitors next day at the lighthouse had no idea that a police officer had been murdered that night right there's like over 70 tourists had came to go see old baldy that day and Mm -hmm. everything nobody knew anything they didn't know nothing about it Mm -mm. all the droplets of blood drag marks were washed away yep so there was only a few pictures taken of the drag marks and the bullet casing, and that was about it. Yeah, and they're not very good quality. No. It was just dark, pretty pretty sad, pretty shoddy damn police work. By 11.30 that morning, rumors of suicide, they were 
starting to spread a little bit. Yeah, they're trying to get that get it get that in everybody's head. Specifically, this Norman McLeod, he was the her fraternal order of police guy and the drug agent who had supposed was supposed to meet D that night. He was the one telling doctors at the hospital that she had been depressed and distraught over relationship and her work. Yeah, I think he's in on it. Yeah, that's where I do. Yeah, we've done talked about this offline he's and pissing me off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And he said um, he denied he was on the island to meet D, but he did use that ferry pass. Right. And he was even seen by Ebb and Flow restaurant employee Karen Grassy's daughter Jamie wearing camouflage yeah wearing some camouflage and he used the pass to come over there she gave him and then shows up in camouflage yep uh-huh. just hours before d's death mm-hmm. and he seemed bent not only insisting d committed suicide but that her problems included the sexual harassment suit were to blame and he insisted there were no complaints of drugs on bald head island mm-hmm. yep so he's just sticking to the damn little the plan here yep but they had also asked him where he had been, and he'd been with the sheriff on a, a raid on Turkey Trap Road. So if there was no drugs, what kind of raid was he on? Right. And he said he broke his foot or something, right? Yeah. And he went to the hospital, I guess, to get an X-ray or a brace or something. Right. And that's when he said, supposedly got the word of her, of her murder. So then he just told the nurse just to stuff it in a boot, and he would... Uh, take a boat trip over to the island but when he got there he was not wearing any kind of boot or nothing or limping or no cast or no nothing right Mm-mm. so yeah this uh this dude's fishy as hell this norman mcleod yeah he's very sketch oh yeah it was also interesting that uh, a little bit later the three men were caught trying to leave the island on by a boat about 1 30 in the morning with the lights off and trying to sneak out but they were they were given uh gunshot residue test and let go but it ends up they were being it was the same three guys that uh, she had made pull up, pour out their drinks earlier in the night yeah but this sheriff ron hewitt he was questioned about that decision later claimed that the men were upstanding church going men mm-hmm. that he knew but in fact all three had pretty long rap sheets including drug trafficking a lot of drug trafficking yes but these men were the three hispanic men yeah. That they were on the ferry. That's right. I'm telling yeah. you, man. Them three dudes and this so-called narco guy, I believe that, and then the, the manager guy, I think they're all in on it. Mm-hmm. She uncovered some kind of big drug thing going on here, and they made her pay for it. Yeah. She I was swear. silenced, though. You no doubt about it. Right. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry to bust off in a tangent there. That's all right. <laughs> also, Dale, there was an eyewitness who saw three men speeding away from the direction of the old Baldy Lighthouse on a golf cart without lights. Mm-hmm. And a man named Andy Adams, who had been doing some construction work on one of the nearby houses, he was sitting on the chapel steps there next to old Baldy drinking a beer. And this is when he heard the shot, and he saw the three men right after that. But the problem with Andy Adams is he didn't come forward right away. Right. And he was too scared to get involved and... You know, that's understandable, but I guess his conscience got onto him and then finally when he come up, he came forward, but it's probably about too late for anybody to believe him then. Yeah. He even uh, had it, wrote a letter and had it notarized and sent to Dee's parents. Yeah, now Davina's parents sued the North Carolina Industrial Commission and the Public Safety Officers Benefits Program. It was after the first 
court ruling in favor of Dee's family that Andy Adams came forward in 2006. The State Bureau of Investigation forced to reopen the case, picked up Andy Adams, handcuffed him, and questioned him relentlessly for three days Yeah, until he withdrew his statement. Yep. They also painted him as an alcoholic, a drug addict, and to further discredit his testimony, other suspects included people that would normally be looked at first, her ex-boyfriend, Scott Monson. He had a solid alibi. Right. And the Will Hewitt didn't. The Will Hewitt. This yeah. was the cousin to Sheriff Ron Hewitt. Right. He was unaccounted for for several hours that night, but he was dismissed right away as a suspect. Yeah. Well, we know he didn't do it. He's he's the cousin of the sheriff. Exactly. Mm-hmm. This other guy that saw what was going on, they took him in, questioned him for three days, so he decided to say he didn't see what he said. That's just, this is messed up, man. All of it is, and it's a damn North Carolina case, and that's what really pisses me off. Mm-hmm. Now, Dale, get this. It was just hours after Dee's death. You know, the rumors of suicide started, and District Attorney Rex Gore would officially rule it a suicide. Yeah. Six weeks later, con- closing the case, he cited her depression and suicide attempts in her past. Before all evidence was even turned in, he closed the case, man. Right. That's why they had to sue to get the, thing, the benefits, because if... Uh, it's a uh, suicide. They don't pay out the benefits. Yeah, because they had sent the police recording to Quantico yeah. for enhancement, and it hadn't even got back. Right. So this Rex Gore man, he was—he's dirty too. He's dirty. Yeah, I've seen a couple of videos of him. He goes, "Well, they said this and they said that, so it's case closed. It's a suicide." Yeah. Ain't no damn way it's a suicide. Yeah, they sent the tape off to Quantico for enhancement. This um, Gore, he closed the case. And D can be heard pleading with someone to put the gun down. Yeah. Gore, he speculated that D didn't sound panicked and that it was faked. Right. As though police officers are not trained to remain calm in dangerous situations. And D does sound calm as though she's trying to, I guess, diffuse the situation. While at the same time signaling to her partner and CECOM that she was in trouble. Yes. Now, in the two lawsuits that the Buff family brought against the Industrial Commission and the benefits program, Dee's mental health was the basis for the defense. And while she did have issues in her past, ultimately it didn't matter. And the Buffs won both cases. When Dee was a teenager, she had wrapped that belt around her throat. Yeah. And trying to hang herself what they claimed. Yeah, whatever. And then trying to you know, swallow the Tylenol. Yeah, but the, basically no one on the island wanted this to be about drugs or if they wanted it to be a murder. So the only alternative they got is to say she shot herself. Yeah, it's that's what they were doing. That's what, it, that's what it boils down to. So it's just crazy. Yeah, and this Will Hewitt, the cousin of Sheriff Ron Hewitt, he said that Dee had told him her life was falling apart and she just wanted to swim out in the ocean and never come back. Yeah, oh well, whatever. Yeah, yeah all these people are crooked on this island, man. Yeah. Well, they're just coming, trying to keep their cash cow, you know. Mm-hmm. Didn't matter about this girl's life. Now, Dale, while they were investigating Dee's case, her service clock was supposed to be preserved for evidence, and yet it was cleaned up and then put in a, a surplus cell on the island. And Yeah, they sold it. Her shoes also went missing. Imagine that, just poof. Yeah, and no one could explain why they had gone missing and her pants also had a scuff mark on them mm-hmm. you know like you know because there were drag marks remember yeah on her right knee yeah 
Like an abrasion on the right knee. Like she was shot somewhere and then drugged somewhere else and thrown on the ground and then the gun put back under her, in her hand. You were forced to kneel. Right. That's yeah. what I'm thinking. And this would explain why there's no bruising from the force of the fall or the shot. Right. Because you know, if you be on your knees, you're not going to fall far anyway. Well, especially if you're four-foot tall. Yeah, but anyway, you're still not going to have any bruising. Right. That's what I'm saying. She's definitely not falling far. She's four-foot tall. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're on your knees. Yeah, they, they claim that they uh, used her coat. I guess to wrap it around her head to muffle the sound. Yeah, or something. Yeah. And that's why they're claiming there wasn't much blood found by her truck. Right. And they think it's more probable that she was forced to kneel, like we said, then quickly drug over to the side of the road. Yeah, and that's when the majority of the blood at the scene was under her body, even though there were drops everywhere, including, you know, inside the drag marks. Yeah. Now, get this. During the her radio call, Dee's first call was used was channel one right and this channel is typically used by the police to advise that she was out with three but when you hear her pleading with someone to put the gun down she was on channel two right and this is the like a private channel that she used with her, her partner and ccom right so this is where i was talking about earlier it would definitely have to be somebody who knew what was going on because when they got there and checked the radio had been switched back to channel one could this be why the uh, the radio squelched? It could be, or another radio keyed in. See, what I'm thinking, she took the damn thing off her lapel, like mm-hmm. I said before, and had it in her hand, so she probably had the mic keyed, even though she had changed channels. So that that's how you get to hear, please put the gun down. There's no use for a gun here. Right? Yeah. So she's holding the mic open in her hand. That's why it's not on her lapel. She took it off because she knew she could hold it in her hand, and they wouldn't know it was on. Uh-huh. Well, then... When they come up, if there's another radio and it keys on or anything, then it's going to feed back. Yeah. So that could be where the squelch come from if there's another radio close to that one while it's open. And then something happened, and then somebody realized what's going on, and then they changed the channel back to channel one. But that's why the mic was by her hand and not still connected to her her shoulder. Exactly. That's what I think. Yeah. I think she knew she was in trouble. So was she called? Because you know... I mean, you've seen a thousand police shows. When they call, they don't ever unhook the mic. They just cocked her head over and talk into it, right? Yeah. So I'm sure she did that first, and then she realized something's up. So she unhooked it probably casually and just held it in her hand with the the mic keyed down. Yeah. She knew she was in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. To not make it look like she's talking into a mic. Right. Yeah. But So everybody else can hear what the hell's going on. Mm-hmm. Especially if you got... You know, I'm assuming these three guys, you know, they probably come up on her in the, in the dark. And if they knew, if she's sitting there watching them and then they see what's going on, if, if any kind of drug deal or whatever, you know, they're all armed. Mm-hmm. So I think, see, that, like you said, come up behind her and that was it. Yep. And get this when they got there and it was investigating the crime scene, her radio had been switched back to channel one. Exactly. That's what yeah. I said. Yeah. So it had to be somebody familiar with the police radios and, and kind of what's going on. Yeah. So that the radio should match the one she still had in her truck. So maybe, you know, the the squealing came from there. But it's definitely something fishy going on with the damn radios. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm sure why, that's what happened. Is she had it in her hand and keyed up the whole time. Mm-hmm. That's why... You could hear them say, you know, there's no need for no gun. So, you know, somebody was there and somebody had a firearm. Now, Chief Karen Grasty, she fought tooth and nail for a better investigation. And she was blocked by the sheriff and the DA. And the SBI, man. Yeah. It don't make any sense. Mm-mm. It's all about money. 
And after she found the crime scene washed down, uh, Chief Karen Grasty said she raised hell and they sent her home. Yeah, they told her to shut up and just go home. Yeah. Yeah, this 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 crooked as shit, man. Yeah, all of them. And they told the workers at the River Pilot Cafe and Old Baldy Lighthouse that they were not to talk about the case to anyone or they'd be fired. Yeah. Sure, sure is. Mm-hmm. And what's really crazy about this, Dale, all these people that involved, they didn't last too long after all this. Nope, and Karen just magically was granted her disability for her back just a few months after this, and she was gone. Mm-hmm. A couple of people got demotions or asked for one just to get out of the middle of this, and and the other ones are just gone. Yeah, that is crazy. Mm-hmm. And uh, Keith Kane transferred to Brunswick County Sheriff's Department. Get the hell out of there. And Fire Chief Kent Brown resigned at the request of the new village or village manager. Well, I guess so. He's yeah. the one that come in there and blowed all the damn evidence out. Yeah. After being told not to. Yep. Now, it gets a little bit better. <laughs> Ron Hewitt, the sheriff, he was brought up on federal charges for obstruction of justice, and he was accused of sexual harassment, witness tampering, and embezzlement. Yep. But he did plead to one charge of obstruction and served a year in 2007. Yeah. And he was brought up on charges again in 2014 for stockpiling guns. Yeah, I think any time he took a gun from somebody, he just took it with him. He? Yeah, he made it his own. Yeah. Now, Gore, he lost his re-election in 2011. Good. Yeah, and there was a new DA. His name was John David. Yeah. He immediately reopened D's case, and he went after Rex Gore. Right. And in 2013, actually August of 2013, Rex Gore pled guilty to conspiracy and fraud along with uh, an assistant DA for falsifying travel reimbursements yeah i think he had okayed like fourteen thousand dollars or something for money that they said they spent but they never did yeah yeah something like that yeah but he was going to put him down this and he's I, getting him any way he can basically. yeah it's yeah. kind of like how they put down al capone for tax evasion yeah but they got him on something yeah gore would never work in public office again but and the new da john david he vowed to keep d's case open and keep digging for answers right to try to find out what happened yeah they killed her but nobody was ever charged in d's murder but her family was successful in both their civil suits against the industrial commission and the public safety officers benefits program Mm -hmm. the first ruling got d's official manner of death changed from undetermined and the second ruling got it changed to homicide yeah so they got it changed undetermined, and then the second one got it to a homicide, like I said. So that way, you know, they can get their, their death benefits, plus all the evidence will stay intact, what, yeah. what little bit there is. Yeah, but they did receive $50,000 from her benefit. Yeah, and then I think it got more money later, like another 140000 for something. Yeah. Now, I do want to mention these two dogs, Dale. Okay. They These two dogs, they mourned over Dee's death yeah, believe her, it or not yeah her parents took the dogs and her truck back to their house yeah yeah and anytime those two dogs could escape from where they were they would go and get in that truck and stay in there yeah wait for her to come home yeah they finally had to get the truck and move it to her sister's house just to get them to stop yeah they wanted her mama yeah they wanted her bad crazy but that is the story of Davina Buff Jones yeah there is a book that was written by a family member or a friend of the family, 
and it's called Out With Three. Yeah. It is written by Elaine Buff. I think she used a pseudonym name. Definitely. A pen name. But it's a... It's a very good read. Very good read. A lot, that, a lot of details. Yep. But that is the story of Davina Buff Jones, Dale. Yeah. It's pretty damn sad. Mm-hmm. I mean, all, the, all she went through to bust her ass to become a cop, and all she wanted to be was a good cop. And when she became a good cop, they killed her for it. And yep. uh, can't make me believe no other way. But uh, I, I do believe that D knew something about the drug deals going down. Yep. And she was on. She was close to finding out something. Yeah. And they knew it. All right, we're going to get out of here. Whew, let's do it. <laughs> I need a beer. <laughs> yeah. We want everyone to be safe. Be careful and always be aware of your surroundings. Because the next episode could be about you. This is the Crack House Chronicles. Chronicles.